Now, this holds true across the board. Out of every 1,000 Americans, 1,000 die. Hello and welcome to the Durham Talents channel. My name is Jesse Durham. We're back for the next installment of our book review series of R. Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker, Unlocking the Infinite Banking Concept. Today, we're going to be covering pages 36 through 40. We're going to be covering the section. It's a section I've certainly been looking forward to. It's Creating the Entity. So this will be the last portion that we cover in part two of his book, Becoming Your Own Banker. We've done a lot of groundwork, and we cannot negate that Nash points out, and I'll even reiterate before we're done again, the bedrock foundation of everything that we've covered so far is so pertinent, so necessary. We cannot jump over that to get to creating the actual entity that we're going to use for privatizing uh, a banking system in our lives. It's absolutely necessary. But here we are. The rubber is meeting the road. We have been working up to this point, of course, making our way through the book. And we're going to begin discussing life insurance policies. Now, Nash starts this section by talking about how actuaries are engineering these products. And they're doing it in a certain way in that they are taking many, many, many lives, millions of selected lives to perform their actuarial math and figure out on these selected lives what is going to be a product that the insurance company can bring to the market for folks that are wanting to have life insurance. And on page 36, Nash has a graph that we're going to reference. So if you want to look up page 36, he is sharing a 1958, yes, that one's a 1958 Commissioner's Standard Ordinary Mortality Table, CSO, short, it's going to be CSO table. That one is from 1958. There have been others since then, of course. I believe that we're going to see a couple of truths that have permeated from that time to this time, which is that we're living longer. Nash said that at the time that he wrote the book. That was in 2000. At the time of this recording, we are in 2023. Wow, amazing. But that has been a trend that the theory, that the lifespan has lengthened. And these CSO tables, they are operating on a theoretical lifespan. He has to age 100 on this particular chart. You can have to age 121 based on the products that are currently offered now, these whole life products that companies offer. So again, these CSO tables change. And what Nash points out here, and this is very important, that it's not so important of when we're looking at a CSO table, but rather the mortality experiences, a company's expenses, and in general how well a company is run and how well its assets performs determines much more importantly, much more relevantly, the important information for us to consider when evaluating these insurance companies, these life insurance products, based on the actuarial math, based on us living longer, and again, companies' expenses, general performance, etc. So it's not so important when a CSO table was made or formulated, but rather those other data. And right there on the chart, he, he points out in bold, you can see that out of, and this is so big, sometimes the things that are so simple 
they're they're the most impactful. Out of 1,000 Americans, so out of every 1,000 Americans, 1,000 die. It's just a it's just a, a fact. It's a it's a reality. There is this life. I believe there's another one. If you want to talk about that, that could be a separate conversation. But I would enjoy that if that's something you are interested in. But 1,000 out of 1,000 die. Nelson would use the term graduate. I like that because of knowing that there is this life and I believe that there's another one. So you're graduating from this existence to the next. Be that as it may, we're, we're going to point out a couple of things on this chart. So if you're looking at this chart, and I'll put up some information here for you to follow along, you're going to see that a certain number of folks do die prior to age 21. Here, let me just interject real quickly. My wife and I have properly structured whole life policies with mutual companies that pay dividends on each of our children. Of course, our approach at this point, not to get ahead of myself, is to acquire as many policies as we can on ourselves, on all of our family members. There is a beauty to having policies on children in that their application process, the underwriting process is, of course, not normally the same as for an adult. Uh, because the medical, they just don't have the same medical history to evaluate, obviously, due to a, a shorter a shorter life so far. So that can be expedited. You can have a policy on a child within a matter of weeks of that child being born. So there are many, many benefits, of course, to having whole life insurance on children. And there's some statistical data that, that should not be overlooked here. There, there are those, statistically speaking, that die prior to age 21, as he shows here. He shows age 25. Now, he jumps to age 45. And if you're just listening along, it's a bell curve. It looks like a bell curve. Of course, there are fewer people that die younger in life. Thank goodness we have all, all the medical uh, advantages, technological advantages that we do nowadays uh, on the front end and on the, the latter end of life. And, and then, of course, starting at age 45, th those numbers begin to go up, these graduation numbers, these, these, these death rates. And then, of course, the biggest portion taking place between 65 and 80. And then fewer people, of course, make it to that theoretical lifespan of 100. And again, these are selected lives. That's important to point out. But when you're looking at this bell curve, yes, 1,000 out of 1,000 die. Yes, some pass early. I've given some pointers on why I think it is very important to go ahead and have coverage, go ahead and have policies on children. Yes, because the underwriting and the application can be expedited because they're children, but the future is unknown. James Nethery, I've heard say that more than anyone else. The future is unknown. You don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. But if we can get policies now on our young children before perhaps other health issues or what have you develop, that's great. You can already own those assets. That's a beautiful thing. But to start pointing out some other metrics here, at age 45, 900 out of the 1,000 are still alive. Now, that's 45 years old. It's important to think about what that age in your life has looked like or could look like, depending on how old you are now, of course, while we're considering these concepts. But 9 out of 10, 9 out of 10 are still alive. And a quarter of the folks will die during those prime working years. Now, why is that important? Well, because we're talking about insurance. So if one out of four 
will die between, and this is approximately, again, these tables have changed before, they're going to change again, but let's look at the truths here that we can still see. If between the ages of 45 and 65, some very prime working years, for sure, if one out of four is going to pass, how, sure, how beautiful would it be if from a child you had, from childhood you had properly structured policies on yourself, or if you acquire those for yourself, of course, that way you could have, and again, I don't want to get ahead of myself, uh, because we will continue to reference back to to this illustration and to these truths from from this illustration. If one out of four is going to die in their prime working years, of course it behooves us to have guaranteed protection and coverage for our loved ones because of that financial loss that they would experience from us graduating during prime working years. Okay, now let's keep going. From age 65 to age 80, we're going to see that three quarters, okay, so three out of four will still require income after 65. Now, I, I'm going to point out here, I'll just go ahead and plant the seed now. I'll come back to it. These can be prime income earning years. That's right. I'm talking about after age 65, prime income earning years. And, but not only that, we see here that three out of four are actually going to require income after 65. So you're going to require income. They could be prime earning years, three out of four. And then after age 80, we see that one out of four still require income after age 80. So after 80, we're seeing that one out of four, that's a good percentage, is still going to need income. So I certainly can remember the time being young enough that, that 10 was a big age. Ten-year-olds were big kids, okay? You probably do, too. I can remember thinking that, wow, those 20-year-olds, they're adults. And then I can remember hitting 30 and thinking, I think I might just have become a man, <laughs> become a mentally mature enough to call myself a man. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe by 35. Okay, but you see what I'm pointing out here, that the time is going to pass either way that these are some very important considerations for us to for us to consider considerations to consider do you like that i mean consider the humor there <laughs> okay moving on there are so many important aspects to to recognize to consider to evaluate and to plan for right now and i'm sure that you are i mean we're doing a book review on becoming your own banker but here we are. So lots of lessons in looking at this CSO table and considering different points along the way. Now, let's come to this age 65 and beyond, for example, because Nash begins to talk about retirement in this section of the book and his thoughts on it. We're, we'll cover some more later. I'm going to have to put it in your lap. The, the history behind this, I'm going to encourage you to look in the direction of Bismarck from Germany, first of all, because what we're seeing is that after a war, for example, there is an influx of young men and women looking to enter the workforce. Uh, the idea behind this retirement concept was to 
you know, push, push the older folks out of the way to make room for these younger folks that are coming into uh, the working space. Let the older folks start to kick back and relax. And here I'm probably going to go ahead and reference some some great reading, some great reading that I've enjoyed recently. And these are these were connected to suggested readings from R. Nelson Nash himself in in this book. I've currently read Anatomy of the State. This is by Murray Rothbard. Very, very interesting looking at the state, look at, because I'm, I'm, I'm referencing here now Germany, you know, at a particular point where this, this idea of retiring, once you hit this age, regardless of your abilities, regardless of your desires, that's just what you're supposed to do is, is, is play golf and drink sweet tea or what have you. There are many lessons there because I'm referencing Bismarck from Germany. I could also point to FDR here in the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and and what happened there. There's actually some, some mention of uh, the New Deal in Rothbard's book, Anatomy of the State. Also recently, I have read The Pension Idea, and I don't want to mispronounce this name, but this is by Paul Perot, P-O-I-R-O-T. Great, great information there. Of course, you could tie the pension idea right along in there with some other concepts like Social Security. Nash points out it's not going to make it. And that's its own conversation to be sure. And of course, now we have other government. Again, going back to the state. Okay, we have other government qualified programs where we're encouraged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Through your working years, put your money here. Don't touch it for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, right? Don't touch it. You're going to hit those golden years. You're going to walk off into the sunset. I mean, if I do, if I do, if I do return to uh, this CSO chart here, just, just, just look and consider the importance of productivity, activity, impacting other people's lives, both for the value that that brings and providing goods and services and value to the marketplace, but also for our own selves. Can I benefit others by going to the gym and getting my physical training done for the day? Absolutely. I could, I could be ready to perform in the need of an event, but does that also benefit me, help me with my sharpness? Absolutely. So that's just, that's just my thinking on, on that particular subject of, staying busy at something, even if it does mean that you move to an encore career or you launch a business or, or what have you, the benefits of staying active. And I actually recently did uh, a short video on never retire. I, and that's not my line. That's from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, who's written a great book. I have it here. Thou shall prosper. I would encourage you to check that out. And he's got a chapter in there where he says, never retire. And he goes into depth there. So I'm putting all of this, okay? I'm putting all of this uh, as encouragement to you, just like I. When I first read Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker, in 2015, I saw that recommended reading, and I'm still making my way through Nash's recommended reading. And I'm even still, of course, rereading Becoming Your Own Banker and gleaning new information myself. So I, out of necessity, must give a lot of this to you and and the burden is is on you and and I believe that you're animated for it anyway because you're here listening to this 
uh, and going through this book with me, and and we're considering these these things together as we review Nash's book. So it's all great. It's all wonderful. I love it. Uh, we have we've already covered the human problem of arrival. I've not arrived. You've obviously not arrived. We're moving forward together. So looking at retirement, to quote Nash, he called it a socialist mental hangup that has no validity at all. I, I, amen. I like that very much. <laughs> Those words stand uh, alone on on their own. The life expectancy has increased. We've talked about that. And here's here's an important point. Retirement age has stayed the same, though. So our life expectancy, I mean, has there been a time where folks just were not making it past 60 years old? Sure, sure. But now we are, and a good bit more, and a good bit more of us are. So both of those metrics at the same time, more of us are reaching uh, more advanced years, and the years have advanced themselves. So Life expectancy has increased, but the retirement age has stayed the same. That makes no logical sense. That makes no reasonable sense. It's something we need to consider because, again, time's going to go by either way. Just like I got to 10 years old, 20 years old, 30 years old before I knew it, we're going to get to these other ages as well if you're not already there. And don't dismay. Don't dismay. You know, I, I have often enough heard from folks, clients, prospects, folks that I'm talking with, Jesse, I wish I saw this 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. The best time to plant a tree was 30 years ago. But the next best time to plant a tree is today. We are where we are. Let's go. Now, Nash does say that Social Security will fail. Again, I've already said that's its own subject. It is. The whole idea is built off of faulty Premises. Again, I'm going to reference these books, Anatomy of the State by Rothbard, The Pension Idea by Paul Perot. There are many false or faulty premises that, that can be addressed by, by educating ourselves on, on those two works. So John Templeton is somebody that, and this is the founder of the um, Templeton Fund, this is somebody that Nash references as mentioning that we should work at least until we are 70 years old at least until we are 70 again look at that chart three out of four are going to still require income after 65 so he's talking about uh, keeping working and again many many great reasons why we would consider doing such a thing so again i'm not telling you retire don't retire but i am asking you to consider the things that, that I was encouraged to consider when I first read Becoming Your Own Banker back in 2015 because I was a high school teacher at the time. And that meant that I knew exactly how many years I would be working in that system. I knew exactly when I was supposed to retire. I knew exactly, you know, the programs and plans that I was supposed to be and I was contributing into state retirement. Again, something that I could not control. Uh, I wasn't asked if I wanted to contribute, you know, 6% or whatever it was of my income uh, to the state to handle. I wasn't asked that. That was compulsory. And, you know, we were encouraged to do the 401ks and, and, and everything else. So what I don't want to overlook here is that three out of four folks are going to require income after 65. And those can be our most productive years. Why would we stop? 
doing what we've spent a lifetime getting great at? Or why would we relinquish the opportunity to pursue a new dream or goal and and be stagnant in that way, knowing that three out of four of us are going to need income and knowing that those certainly can be our most productive years? And when I when I was making my way and preparing for this this conversation with you on this particular part of the book review, I'm sure we could come up with many. Okay, I thought of some from Scripture. I mean, wasn't Moses? He, he was forty years old uh, before he was ever called uh, to start going to Egypt and freeing the Israelites. So incredible. But I thought about Colonel Sanders, Colonel Sanders. We would say. Um, Mr. Kentucky Fried Chicken. I mean, he was in his late 60s or or 70, whatever it was. He was in his advanced years of life before he started building that business of getting his recipes out there, getting a system in in place of bringing uh, the Colonel's Chicken uh, to the world. And now that's an international company. And I'm just saying that there's a lot to consider there, and I hope that you will take advantage of it like I am still taking advantage of it my own self. Now, let me interject here that the conventional financial propaganda is going to say that, well, we only need insurance from 20-something to to 60-something, let's say. After that, your nest egg and your assets and your investments and all this, all this other stuff. Let's, oh man, there's so much to question right there about those, those, those ideas and concepts, right? But it'll be purported to us that we only need insurance during those years and you should buy term and invest the difference. That's probably not a new saying to you, but consider, consider what Nash points out here in his book. He says, most people, Okay, most people, and and on this particular chart, it's showing that three out of four, three out of four, are still requiring income after 65, so they're still alive. So three out of four, 75%, are going to die after age 65. So right at the time where if you're following that route of buy term and invest the difference right when it's most likely right when it's most probable you're not going to have coverage you're not going to have protection you're not going to have that guaranteed tax-free windfall from insurance to your heirs or to your beneficiaries so not only you know do most die after 65 and and there's that issue of well you could have a tax-free transfer of wealth to the next generation but also, you're going to need income after 65. And what have those investments and assets done? I don't know. You don't know. I don't know what those are going to do if we participate in those plans or programs. I don't know what they're guaranteed to do 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, and you don't either. Okay, now let's talk about life insurance because the the, the title of this section, of course, is Creating the Entity. And so we're needing to look at how insurance products are built by actuaries, what that science looks like. We do need to consider the propaganda that we're supposed to retire at at 65. We need to look at what conventional finance is saying. Now let's consider these different insurance products. Now Nash puts out another diagram. This is going to be on page 38 where he's showing on a spectrum single premium policy life insurance 
to 20 pay life policies, life paid up at 65, ordinary life, and term insurance policies. And he's showing this spectrum of different products and lots of companies offer lots of products. And he does also point out that along that spectrum, there can be something that occurs, which is where a policy has its tax treatment change and it can become a modified endowment contract, MEC, a MEC is how we will refer to that, a modified endowment contract. And it's still a policy. It's still a contract between an individual and an insurance company. But many things change. Uh, suffice it to say that the tax treatment of that contract changes. So looking at this spectrum, it's important to know that all calculations for these products are based off of a single sum amount, meaning whether I want a term insurance or 20 pay or, or what have you, when a company gives me a premium, that premium amount is going to be based off of, well, what would it cost us to cover Jesse for this allotted time, whether that's my whole life or the next 10 years, if, I, if I'm getting term insurance or what, what's that going to cost us? What's the actuarial science behind that based off of his, his age or his medical history or just all those different things that you go through in applying for insurance and, and what's his premium amount going to be? So the idea there, of course, is conventionally speaking, when it comes to insurance, is get as much death benefit as possible for as little premium as possible. As much death benefit as possible for as little premium as possible. That's the conventional approach to getting insurance. Now, term insurance is the oldest. So insurance goes back over 200 years. 200 years. And that's what Nash said, of course, at the time of the writing. That's been another couple of decades uh, till now. So Always term, meaning that if you died during that term, during the, the time allotted for that contract, then your heirs or beneficiaries or whoever would receive a death benefit. Okay, And now there are these other several products that are offered and some others that we'll mention here in just a second. But insurance is over 200 years old. That's important because when we do start to talk about the whole life policies, of course, we're going to see that, well, the tax code, the IRS, all that came to be in 1913. So life insurance has been around much, much, much longer than the tax code and, and, and et cetera. So term costs, let me keep going on term here. We're going to talk about these one at a time, these, these different products offered on the spectrum. Term costs as one ages rise. Okay. It costs more to insure a 50-year-old than it does a 30-year-old. 70-year-old, more than... Okay, so what you can find, of course, is that you get to a point where the costs of term insurance become prohibitive, meaning it just doesn't make sense. It, folks just aren't going to write the check to have that insurance for the next year because of, of, of the cost becoming too much for the next 10 years or whatever the case happens to be. So what that means is not only can you anticipate that the costs become prohibitive, but also that you're much more likely then to die, because that part's going to happen, but you're going to die when you don't have life insurance because the costs became prohibitive. So those are some, those are some considerations for considering 
term insurance in comparison to these others. And again, I've got to point out home insurance, car insurance, phone insurance. Those types of insurance only pay out if there's a house fire, for example, if we have an automobile accident. So if you die during the term, during that allotted time in the agreement, in the contract, only then do your heirs or beneficiaries receive that death benefit. Now, ordinary life doesn't focus on if you die, it's when you die, because 1,000 out of 1,000 Americans, right? So ordinary life pays when you die, or unless you reach that 100 years of age or that 121 years of age, depending on which product you have. If you reach 121 years of age, that policy will endow. And if you're still living, the insurance company is just going to give you directly uh, your, your, your death benefit, the face amount of that, of that policy. And Nash points out, if, if we're going to discuss ordinary life now, Nash points out that it's a misnomer to have used that name of ordinary life, that it's a misclassification. He says that it was much more like, and I quote, a banking system with a death benefit thrown in for good measure. So that's that's a quote from this uh, chapter because, you know, this is just what he began to realize, of course, that this product that had been around for so long, when it was really evaluated as an entity itself, that it had banking functions to it. That this 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 type of a contract, because of the death benefit and the cash value and all the things that we're going to continue discussing, it had these banking attributes to it. Now, let me interject here a little seasoning for what I just said because I've heard more than once James Nethery say that life insurance doesn't come any other way than with a death benefit because it's life insurance. So we're, we're getting ready to talk about really focusing on the cash value, building up a high cash value in a policy if you're going to have it properly structured, okay, by an, by an experienced professional. If you're going to have it properly structured for implementing privatized banking, for implementing the infinite banking concept, there's a bigger focus on cash value than the death benefit. But life insurance doesn't come any other way than with a death benefit. So just a little yin to the yang, just a little light to the dark right there, just a little um, perspective on the dichotomy, and really just a description is what we're going to get to of these different parts of a policy, cash value, death benefit, etc. But Nash points out that he realized the banking potential with such a policy. So he was saying it was misclassified. It should have just been uh, a banking system with the death benefit thrown in for good measure. Now, the the story that he gives us here is about the potato, which is terribly interesting because he's talking about the Spanish conquistadores. We would say los conquistadores. And, and they came from Spain looking for gold in the New World. And just for one example, they found potatoes. Now, these potatoes were taken back to the quote-unquote old world. And there, they were accurately determined to be part of a poisonous plant family. And, and indeed, we've raised pigs on our property here before, for example. And, and I found out at that time that we were not to feed 
because we have a garden as well normally here. And I, I, I was I was told for sure not to give the greens, for example, from our potato plants to the pigs. It's poisonous. It's poisonous. Potatoes, they're great. I love a baked potato. And 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 that's great, but the potato itself does come from a family. I'm not even going to bother trying to say the name, but it comes from a family of plants that are poisonous. There, there are multiple poisons that can be procured from the family that potatoes come from. And yet, what Nash points out is that, well, they were looking for gold, the conquistadors were, found potatoes, brought it back. It was misunderstood. It was, you know, misclassified. And now... Well, at least at the time of this writing, he was pointing out that in one year's time, the value of a potato, one year's potato crop, is worth more than all the gold in the Western Hemisphere. Let me say that again. Conquistadors were looking for gold. One thing that they found, just for an example, is potatoes. Potatoes were brought back. They came from a poisonous family of plants misclassified, misunderstood, scorned, okay? But now, one year's yield of potatoes in the world is worth more than all the gold in the Western Hemisphere. Incredible. Incredible. So again, just pointing out the problem that can come with misclassifying things, misunderstanding things. And now that we've already covered the arrival syndrome, I feel very comfortable in talking about this kind of stuff, knowing that the seeds that I'm sowing are going to land on good ground and it's going to be fertilized and grow and produce 30 fold, 60 fold, 100 fold. So the potato, that's, that's a beautiful story. I, I never heard that before. And again, even though I'd known that from having pigs and, and a garden here on, on our property, I never looked at it in that way that that, that detriment that can come from misunderstanding something. That actually makes me think of the quote that you may have heard me reference before. It is Will Rogers who says, the problem isn't so much what Americans don't know, but it's what they think they know that just ain't so. So the grain of truth that, yep, the potato did come from a poisonous family of plants, but now it's also just a staple in so many places. And Nash talks about the the potato plague or blight in, in, in Ireland, for example, and what a devastation that was that led to starvation because we'd even swung the pendulum so far as to become reliant or, or at that time, and, and those folks had become reliant upon the potato. All right, now we get to looking at these policies, looking at these different products for the purposes of implementing the infinite banking concept. So let me give you some details, some concise details from this section. One is the shorter the payment period on a policy, the better suited it is. Nash says that. And, and I do believe that that merits discussion because you could quickly say, well, the shortest payment period. Well, what about a 20 pay life? And I'm certainly not going to say that a 20 pay couldn't be appropriate for someone. Again, that's why it's so important to talk to somebody, work with somebody who personally practices this infinite banking concept when you're looking to implement this. But he does say that there's a better suitability with a shorter shorter pay policy. 
I would also add some perspective to that point by asking the question, because some, some folks will say, well, okay, I want to get the capitalization phase too short is the problem. And remember, we've already covered it. One of Nash's key principles is don't be afraid to capitalize. So an appropriate capitalization is a necessary principle to approaching this. Now, do we want it to be as short as possible? Absolutely. Of course, I'd like it to take as little time as possible to have an asset that I own get through a capitalization phase and now we're we're experiencing yields and, and greater utility and whatnot, of course, but it should also be appropriate is, is what I'm saying. So there's the dichotomy. So we're not afraid to capitalize. And my question along that train of thought is going to be, once you realize that premiums should be looked at as deposits, I've never made too many deposits into any of my accounts. Have you ever made too many deposits into any accounts that you have? No. So we can't have too little access to money. We can't be afraid to capitalize. So how long would you like to be able to make deposits into your own privatized banking system? For this amount of time, this amount of time, this amount of time, more, or your whole life? Okay, that's, that's what I'm trying to provide there. Another point that Nash brings up here when looking at these products for IBC purposes is we do want to get as close to the neckline as reasonably possible, but not cross it. So we, we don't want to turn a policy. There's no need to. He says it's also not the end of the world. If a policy becomes a MEC, a modified endowment contract, it's not the end of the world. But why do it if you don't have to? And you don't have to. And again, that's what matters to work with a competent professional so that you're not putting yourself in a position of being uneducated or unprepared for using a properly structured policy well for your banking purposes. I'm not trying to be too deep here. It's very simple. Okay. This shouldn't be scary. It's simple. We don't want it to become a mech. You should become educated, have properly structured policies, work with competent people, and then use those well, being an honest banker, to avoid a policy turning into a mech. That's all. That's all. He also points out that one policy is not going to satisfy our entire need of finance for our whole life. So we are eventually going to be talking about you having and building a system of properly structured whole life policies with mutual companies that pay dividends. Okay, so you're not having to squeeze everything out of one policy. You're not having to try and to accomplish all of your financial goals with one policy. Again, if we do look at commercial banks, don't they open up multiple branches? They sure do. He also talks about the paid up additions rider. And he mentions that the dividend, because while the dividend is not guaranteed, Companies that I personally own policies with, for example, have paid, paid dividends for well over 100 consecutive years. So while dividends are not guaranteed, once we recognize their ability to add to our death benefit and then therefore add to our cash value, Nash encourages us, because we do have multiple options, he encourages us to use our dividends to buy more paid-up additional insurance. And having a paid-up additional Insurance rider on a policy is a very integral part of having a properly structured policy for IBC purposes. 
and we can go more into what that means, I guess. The paid up additions rider is something that it's a rider that is attached to the chassis of a standard, ordinary, whole life policy. And what it does is it allows you to have a higher cash value sooner than you otherwise would with just a whole life policy itself without having that rider, the paid up additions rider. And of course, uh, over the long range, it's going to add to your death benefit as well. And then, of course, the dividend, as we just mentioned here. So in general, the principle is to have a lower immediate death benefit so that you can have a higher immediate cash value in your policy by taking a whole life policy, adding a paid up additions rider. Now, conventionally, again, let me point out that it goes against what we're conventionally told to do. What we're conventionally told to do is pay as little premium as possible for as big of a death benefit as possible. Here we're saying, well, we're going to focus on premiums. We want to have a high cost insurance. <laughs> we want to pay as much premium as is appropriately possible for us. As much, you heard me right. We want to pay as much premium as appropriately possible for us without emphasizing the death benefit. Now here again, to add some dichotomy, I say that everyone should have an appropriate amount of coverage. If you have obligations, if you have a desire to cover certain things, provide for certain folks, what have you, you, you can do that at the same time. It is possible to get a high cash value policy that also from day one provides you with the type of guaranteed coverage and protection that you want. Again, speak with an appropriately educated, practicing professional, someone that's doing this concept themselves as well. So lower death benefit, higher cash value. And ultimately what Nash is going to say is that ultimately if you build a policy this way and if you practice banking and you're an honest banker, you will ultimately end up with more death benefit than you could have otherwise have been originally underwritten for. Because between the policy itself, the whole life policy itself, plus the paid up additions rider, you can have you can have it all. You can have a high cash value from the start to the point where you can access even the majority of the value of your premiums via a policy loan against the cash value of your policy from year one. Access the majority of the value of your premiums even in year one. And then, of course, over the course of your lifetime, still have such a strongly built policy to where you end up with more death benefit eventually than you otherwise would have been originally underwritten for. And again, when you have a policy that's designed this way, when is it that you are leaving that death benefit to your heirs or your beneficiaries? When death is more likely for you. So It'll happen in a time in your life when death is more likely and the numbers will be greater. And it will actually still be enforced because it wasn't term and it was properly structured whole life policy. Now, also when Nash talks here about life insurance for the purposes of infinite banking, he does cover it. And I'm so glad that he does because this term has become more and more popular. It seems like this term of overfunded policies, overfunding policies. I don't like that. 
Now here he says, and, and I like how he puts it, he says, if that helps you to understand uh, this, this part of the concept, good. But what I'll also point out is that an insurance policy, especially if you're trying to stay below a MEC limit, there are limitations on how much premium you can pay what the death benefit is, what the cash value is, it's in your contract. It's in your legally binding contract is what I'm trying to point out here. Legally binding contract. So it's it's not possible to overfund your policy. Now again, if you're trying to say, yes, this is different than going into a box store, talking to a box store agent, pushing the vending machine button, getting your you know, as big of a, a death benefit as possible for as small of a term premium as possible. If you're trying to say that, okay, well, compared to that scenario, a properly structured whole life policy with a mutual company that pays dividends is overfunded. I mean, kind of, but I don't like it. I don't like it at all. It's not accurate. I would actually use Nash's word and say that's a misclassification. Again, you cannot overfund a policy. It is a contract with terms. And the terms are that when you went through underwriting, when you went through application, for example, you 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 are offered a policy by a company where it said a unilateral it, this is a unilateral contract. You pay this amount of premium, and the company says, Okay, if you'll pay this amount of premium, this this level premium at and there's flexibility there. Don't get me wrong, there's flexibility there. We'll be talking more about that. But you pay this level premium. That's your responsibility. Scheduled ongoing premiums, etc. On a yearly basis, annual basis, monthly, quarter, semi-annual, whatever. And we're going to provide this guaranteed death benefit. We're going to provide a cash value. We're going to provide stipulations, of course, that you know, with you as part owner of this company, if we experience a positive general performance, that you're going to be able to have a dividend, all these different things. So that's the unilateral contract. You pay that premium. And then everything else is on the insurance company to perform. Well, you can't overfund that. Now, I've already said, yes, we want high cash value policies. So we're building these policies in a particular way. And when I have a phone call with someone or I'm meeting with someone and they're in our process, we have a talk. We have more than one talk about their particular financial situation because a policy should be built for the individual's short-term goals? No question. I started using my first policy in my first year. In fact, after my first month of owning a policy. And my wife and I started tackling our student loan debt. But of course, I'm going to refer back to Nash's, one of his key principles of thinking long range. You can't just build successfully for the short term and a, a true infinite banking policy. There are plenty of folks that try and take 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 some of this too far and they'll try and say, well, I want to have such a high cash value that I'm going to put 90% of my premium into the paid up additions rider and only 10% in the base. Well, how does that provide you with what we've already discussed? Meaning, how's that going to provide you with over the course of your lifetime the type of death benefit that you couldn't have been underwritten for, how's that going to provide you with a powerful passive income producing asset in those later years, just like we saw, remember, 
just like we saw on that CSO table. Three quarters of folks are still going to need income after 65. But if we're too focused on, well, I want to go dollar on dollar, or I want to have access to to 90% or 100% as quick as I can. And who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? I, I get it. But if you're only thinking about year one, you're not thinking long range. And you're certainly being afraid to capitalize. And that's that's violating the two key principles to have success. And that's this is what I'm trying to point out. That's not just a difference of opinion. Okay? Because there are folks that do it that way. There are folks that are building policies for folks 90% towards the paid-up additions rider, 10% towards the base, and it's just not going to perform successfully as an entity that will own over our whole lifetime for a privatized banking entity or privatized banking system. So this idea of overfunding, in my opinion, is erroneous and the structure of a policy is so very important. We have to take the totality of the circumstances that we've discussed so far to have a properly structured policy. Yes, we want to pay as much pos- uh, as much money as possible to have essentially the least amount of insurance. Again, within reason. You should have the coverage that, that you should have. You should have the protection that you should have. And I know that that is counterintuitive to what we're conventionally uh, told to do. I mean, nowadays, could you imagine if, if you were talking with the average person and you were saying something about, well, yes, I'm, and, and I'm not trying to use crazy numbers here, so I don't think I will use crazy numbers per se, but, but they might be significant for, for some, of course, as well. But if you told the average person that you were paying tens of thousands of dollars in life insurance premiums, that they just wouldn't, they wouldn't know what to do with that. They would think you're kidding or they, they would think that you're crazy because it's it's not conventional. And and I know that there are people that pay really big numbers. But again, I'm not trying to focus on that. I'm just trying to say it's it's unconventional, it's counterintuitive, and Nash is literally giving us the aspects that we should be aware of so that we can own a properly structured policy with a mutual company that pays dividends so that we can have this entity that he's described that we can use to account for our need of finance in our households, our businesses, as investors, whatever it is that we happen to be doing. And he gives another great story here about Christopher Columbus. And I love I love how Nash puts this information in his, his written book for us to consider. He talks about how Christopher Columbus leaves the old world, of course, looking to go to a new a new a route to get to India. He, he particularly wanted to get to India for commerce and trade and business and what have you. And he lands somewhere in the Caribbean probably, but he lands in the new world. And what does he do? Because he was heading to India, or at least so he thought. So he decided to take the long route, right? But he called the folks there Indians. Now that was not correct, but the name stuck, Nash points out, the name stuck. And then he also talks about how that just leads us to have wrong conclusions, to be limited in our thinking. Again, we see another example of a misclassification. Those North Americans were not Indians from India. And finally, he points out there that words are powerful things. Words are powerful things. That name did stick. So as we're as we're looking 
at what Nash is teaching here in his book. And he's exposing us to the idea that we can become our own banker and that we can have these types of entities by selecting from conventional products, life insurance. Again, it's more conventional, more conventional than our tax code here in the U.S. because it predates it. So talk about conventional, but the thinking, the thinking, the misclassification, the misunderstanding, the misnomers, the limited thinking. Okay, that's what's detrimental. So for those of us that want to become our own bankers, the entity that we want to have should have these descriptions, of course, that, that Nash has given us. And I talk with folks regularly about things that they've heard elsewhere, things that they maybe have already done elsewhere. And I always bring everybody back to the book. I mean, that's why we're doing this book review. Folks, I've been doing this for eight years now on this journey of becoming my own banker, me, my wife, our family, for our vacations, for paying off our debts, for living our lives. I still reread Nash's book, and it's still important to me and helpful to me to read his book and to study his book and to have conversations with you about it. So here he's given us the descriptions of suitable policies for implementing the infinite banking concept. Now, to wrap up this section, he does cover two important other products that, that I I think we should also note. And one is Universal Life. Universal Life was invented in the early 1980s by E.F. Hutton. Uh, he had a stock brokerage firm. They don't exist. Well, actually, not only do they not exist now at the time of this recording, 2023, they didn't exist when Nash wrote the book in 2000. So that really says something, doesn't it? But what essentially was happening was the idea and the approach was to take life insurance and to try and unbundle which nash says you can't do you're not understanding properly whole life insurance when you're trying to do this and you just got to ask who was trying to do it why were they trying to do it it's these are worthy questions but there was the attempt to unbundle to unpackage the life insurance from some type of interest bearing account because again if you look at whole life insurance when you pay premiums, that buys you a death benefit, a guaranteed death benefit. And there are lots of other characteristics to consider, but it buys you a guaranteed death benefit. Because it's a guaranteed death benefit, it's going to pay out when you graduate, when you die. It naturally has a net representation of that greater future death benefit in a cash value today. So it's a present-day net representation of that greater future death benefit. And they were trying to unpackage this by giving you term insurance, essentially, and also some type of interest-bearing account. Now, what happens is these fall apart in advanced years. We've already talked about how term can become prohibitive in its costs, and then their folks are going to be without having coverage when they are more likely to die. And, and then, of course, not only that, but the cash value that perhaps could have been in these universal policies is eat up. So it begins to self-cannibalize to cover those what are going to become prohibitive costs of premium. So then you don't have cash value either. And again, when you recognize the cash value is a representation of the death benefit, so it self-cannibalizes over time. And then it's much more likely not even to be in force as a contract at the time of death. And also, remembering that CSO table, 
when most people are still going to require income. Nelson did not own any of those policies. Nelson did not own universal life insurance, nor did he sell it. I do not own universal life insurance, nor do I sell it. That's what I have to say about that. And then, of course, as I, as I mentioned, because when I, when I have a strategy call with folks, I'm thinking of an individual who is a minister and is a minister, father, husband, great guy in his community. And we were having our second, maybe even a third phone call. And we were getting into his financial footprint. And he was telling me about some policies that he'd had back from years and years ago. And, but he was becoming exposed to the idea of becoming his own banker, having properly structured whole life policies. And we were talking about those universal policies. We were looking at what we might do uh, for him, his plans, what what he wanted. And at, at some point, he actually ended up dropping out of our process. We didn't get anything done for him. And I learned not too long thereafter, certainly within a year thereafter, uh, that he'd actually been diagnosed with a cancer. And of course, just that changes things. So my only, my only point here is not to scare folks, but just to say, I don't know what the future holds. You don't know what the future holds. Okay. Other than we can recognize that 1,000 out of 1,000 Americans are going to die, are going to graduate. And knowing that the future is unknown, as we do understand how these properly structured whole life policies can work as a privatized banking entity, that also allow us to have a guaranteed tax-free transfer of wealth. The value of those types of guarantees, guaranteed access to capital during our lifetimes, guaranteed compound interest growth on our premiums, guaranteed death benefit for our beneficiaries. The value of those guarantees cannot be overstated, in my opinion. Now, another product that Nash mentions is Variable Life. And Variable Life was invented by Equitable Life Assurance Company. This idea here was life insurance with a side fund of mutual funds. Now, interesting things about mutual funds, I'm going to give you Nash's recommendations on, on becoming educated in mutual funds. One, there are more mutual funds than stocks. Now, just think about that statistically. There are more mutual funds that, than there are stocks. And that no mutual fund is better than its manager. So I'm not saying have mutual funds, don't have mutual funds, but just know that there are more mutual funds than there are stocks. What does, what does that indicate, that spectrum or that variety or that volume of stocks that are out there? And just recognize that those mutual funds are associated with the manager and they can't be better than that manager is. And then Nash does give some suggested reading. So he suggests that we read The Truth About Mutual Funds. He also suggests that we read the book The Battle for the Soul of Capitalism by John Bogle. Bogle was the originator of the Vanguard Fund. Very interesting point. And then finally, and perhaps my favorite, uh, The Pirates of Manhattan by Barry Dyke. I've listened to Barry Dyke multiple times. Very, very interesting gentleman. Very studious. Highly recommend his, his, his video, video content, his books, etc. You can find him online as well if you want to know more about what he's done and where he's taught. 
So again, ultimately, when it comes to variable life, Nelson didn't own it, did not sell it. I do not own any, and I do not sell any. I literally practice what I preach. And then I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote Nash's last line in this section. He says, "The tragedy of our times is that the life companies never spent any time on understanding dividend-paying whole life insurance and teaching the buying public its characteristics." So let's not misclassify. Let's not misunderstand. Nash is saying. The life companies themselves aren't seeing it for what it could be. For an entity, a private asset that we can own and control to use to account for our need of finance. And certainly the buying public doesn't know. But here we are. We're talking about it. We're discussing it. So to review part two in the book, the whole part two, Nash tells us, number one, to reevaluate the pitfalls of human behavior. If we're not going to conquer Parkinson's, there's no point in reading any further. There's no point in discussing this any further. You're not going to have success if you say you want to become your own banker. If you And we all have to. And we all have to every day confront the human problems. We need to fully understand them and conquer them or we're going to lose. Two, he says, reevaluate that mortality chart that we were just looking at. Life expectancy has increased, but the retirement age has stayed the same. That doesn't make sense. So the highest cost of insurance we're talking about with a minimized death benefit, not insignificant death benefit, minimized death benefit because it's not the focus. While avoiding a mech and maximizing cash value is how to have a properly structured policy for banking. Now, there, there are more descriptive details that we can go into but that's what nash is saying in the book so that's what i am reiterating here so we're talking about to have an entity for your own privatized banking system owning and using properly structured whole life policies with mutual companies that pay dividends and if you have any questions about this particular section of the book please put that in the comments below or feel free to reach out to me and most importantly if you'd like to know how to acquire these types of entities for your own banking purposes, whether that's for your household or your business or your investing, then don't hesitate to reach out to me. I look forward to that conversation. I hope you have a great day. Thanks for being here for this part of our book review. I'll be putting out the next one soon. Take care. Today, we're going to talk about how you can own, no, not own, how to make your pride, about how to make and own your very own. No, you own your very own. Today we're going to talk about how to own. So for every 1,000, nope. Mm-mm-mm. Pertinent. So again, these CSO chain, the, so again, now let me interject here that the conventional, that the conventional, now also when Nash, <clears throat> nope. Now also when Nash, that's it, Jesse.